Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Hi. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive podcast on very shallow topics. I am one of your hosts, Margot Poupard. And I'm one of your other hosts, Emily Bejan. And today, we hope that you have recently frequented a hot topic, that you have a really punk rock looking case of Kleenex, and that hands down, this is the best day that you're ever going to have, ever imagine. Break out those studded belts and those crooked bangs, those very tight jeans, and those Converse sneakers that you just had to draw sad lyrics all over. It's emo night. Hey, that eyeliner that you smudged on looks great. (laughs) I can say all of this from experience. Septum piercing. That wasn't me, but that was several other people. That was someone else's truth. Good for you. (laughs) That was someone else's emotional truth. Lip piercings. Oh, what a time to be alive between 2000 and 2004, five. I feel like the peak was like 2002. But if you were a teenager and you felt sad about literally anything, somebody handed you a mixtape that featured Dashboard Confessional, Taking Back Sunday, Something Corporate, and Fall Out Boy. And probably some other ones too, like The Used, which we won't get to because um, these emo bands are think that they are starring on an episode of Dynasty, I swear to fucking God right now. The behind the music collection I could get out of this shit. Thank you so much for bringing that up because as I was trying to condense the amount of drama that takes place in Taking Back Sunday, I was like, where is VH1? Where is Taking ba- Where is Behind the Music? I don't understand. Colon, Taking Back Sunday. VH1 did a huge reboot of Behind the Music in the last 10 or so years. Did they talk to emo bands of no, the early to mid-2000s? No. No, they talked to, like, random people. Like, I'm pretty sure Juvenile or someone like that had a Okay, but that's probably band. pretty good, though. It's probably I would love good. to hear the Behind the Music of Back That As Up. It's A-Z-Z, by the way. 
And it, baby little Wayne. Yeah. I'm sorry. That still freaks me the fuck out. It really does freak Whenever you me see too. the music video for Soldier and he like comes out and is like, meh, meh, I'm a baby. You're like, what the fuck is happening? So young. You're 15. You're a child. You are missing biology. That's like the other day I was listening um, to a Big Daddy Kane album from the early 90s where Jay-Z had a guest um, oh, weird. Birth. And this is like 93, 94. So Jay-Z was like 17, 18. Like he's a baby in this. And it was so weird to hear one young Sean Carter <laughs> at such a youthful age. Pre-big pimpin'. Yes. Small pimpin'. Yes, very much. <laughs> Small fry pimpin'. Oh, yes. If you were in high school or you had a weird cousin or older sibling, if you fall under the... I feel like it's a really specific age of like... 28 to 33 because yes. my husband's 35 and he's he's been listening to me listen to emo music for the last week and he repeatedly asks if I am feeling okay I would I would really yeah say it's everyone that was with me during my time in high school so that means the seniors that were there when I was a freshman all the way down to maybe the freshman from when I was a senior. So that's like a five-year period of people. Like, those are the people who will get this. And apparently, these are the people that show up to the Warp Tour's 25th anniversary as well. Of course. Of course, because they've got <clears throat> income. But they still have the skinny jeans somewhere. <laughs> there was a really funny sketch in a uh, Blink-182-themed sketch show that I had the privilege of seeing where they had a, a very accurate and extremely accusatory sketch where it's a, older dudes go to see Blink-182, but they're older now, so they're like, yeah, no swearing, like, it's totally cool, like, I'm going to be responsible outside of the mosh pit, but they decide to get in it, and then one of them falls, the other one leaves him behind, and I felt personally attacked, and there's one person that just laughs at the old dudes falling down, <laughs> and as somebody who fell very hard in a mosh pit on their 30th birthday, yeah, I felt deeply seen. <laughs> that was like when I went to see the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones last year because my friend had an extra ticket and it was all these 50-year-old rude boys just like skanking, skanking away <laughs> wearing hats to cover up their male pattern baldness. Like it was very, it was, it was interesting. It was like seeing a glimpse of youth over a sea of dads. Well, the dude who was just their professional dancer. Their oh, he was there. Their fly he girl, totally if you bald. will. <laughs> he has been 40 for a very long time. He has. I recall their stint or their cameo, excuse me, in Clueless and being like, who's the dad? <laughs> yeah, so he turns out, I found out, is more than just like the dancer. I think he handles some of the business and stuff. And they were like, oh. why don't you get on stage? Yes, he does dance. have manager energy he about manager him. manager energy. But I love that they're just like, you get to be a part of this band as well, man. And he's in every music video and always performs with them. And he fully skanked away that night. It was great. Well, a band whose mosh pit I didn't go into when I finally did see them live, but would have killed to have been in their mosh pit as a teenager, is Taking Back Sunday. Mm. I saw them, which I would say, in a really awkward time. It was, I think I saw them at BFD, which is put on by the Bay Area version of K-Rock. And it's R.I.P. Or no, sorry, no, not it's K Fog. You're oh thinking God. of sorry. Jesus Christ. We're recording tonight. It's the I don't know. It's like oh, it's September 5th, and tonight's the last night of K Fog. Apparently, oh, it's September 5th, and also we just crossed 2,000 listens. Pew Ooh. pew pew pew. Thanks. Sorry I probably should save that till the end, but I also wanted to commemorate the date. Yes. Anyway, I saw Taking Back Sunday at BFD in 2008 or nine. I don't even know what album they were supporting, but they are one of those 
old school road bands that you can always catch on tour, kind of like Spoon, but um, more sad and screamy, obviously. And when I saw them, and this kind of, this story feeds into something that happens to them later on in the early part of their career, but uh, Mountain View, Shoreline Shoreline in Mountain View is a weird venue. It's all outside. It's supposed to be like a festival sort of vibe. So there are like different tents and different stages, but they're playing on like the bigger side main stage, not like where there's amphitheater seating and like a grassy lawn area where like tool plays per se. So they were playing the asphalt version. There was a big pit going on, which I refused to partake in. And at some point during Make Damn Sure, uh, Adam Lazara climbed the scaffolding to the top and sang like the last verse from up there. And I felt very scared for his safety and thought that if I felt that I was too old, someone who would recently or was about to graduate from college was too old to be doing that. He was most certainly too old to be doing that. Wow. I just felt scared that you're going to hurt yourself. And I don't want to see someone who I once worshipped fall down very hard on a stage and possibly die. That would be a really sad reason to end up sustaining, you know, lifelong injuries. It feels like a subplot on like a dark comedy. I'm just like not interested in being a part of it. Yeah. But for the amount that I listened to and was extremely obsessed with Taking Back Sunday, I didn't even know they were from fucking New York. (laughs) I knew nothing about this band. I don't even know how I got into Taking Back Sunday. I feel like I think they were a part of a mixtape, which I really liked. And then I went to LimeWire, downloaded all of Tell All Your Friends and uh, Where You Want to Be. I went on LimeWire and downloaded both of those albums after I got a mixtape that had I don't even know what on it. But you'll get more into mixtape culture and how there's... And was it GQ or Esquire that just put Esquire, out? Esquire, yeah. Just put out that article about how there's like a whole generation of music that's lost to just like mixtapes that are floating around. And I've held on to a good many of them, but honestly, I don't have a fucking way to play them. Yeah. I don't know how I would. I can't even play them in the car anymore because we took over the CD chamber in order to plug our phones in so we could listen to music. So there was something about like the melodramatic lyrics that spoke to my hormonal teenage soul. But the amount that I knew about them was very, very small compared to how much I listened to them all of the time. I spent an entire summer blasting both of those sad albums while visiting the south of France. And it doesn't get much more goth than a fucking 15 year old blasting emo music while in the south of France like a fucking loser <laughs> I really did feel like my family was like is she gonna be all right I mean for that's the record by that's our sad American cousin <laughs> I mean for the record by senior year of high school I was in therapy so maybe they were on to something I wonder if I was known as that too that's our sad American cousin right and then all my cousins were like scared to talk to me about rap they're like oh you know Eminem's cool too. I'm like, yeah, Eminem's great. They're like, oh, great. You love something that's not super depressing. Got it. Awesome. <laughs> but Taken Back Sunday <sighs> was founded in 1999 in Amityville, uh, <laughs> Horror, New York, by the guitarist Eddie Reyes and their vocalist guitarist Jesse Lacey. So, sort of an important ish side note about Jesse Lacey. Um, although Brand New is his band that he's best known for creating and he's not covered in that band is not covered that much throughout what we're about to be talking about. They do come up a lot because they were just in the same scene at the same time and they are sort of a seminal emo band as well. 
But in case you don't know, in 2017, Jesse Lacey was accused of sexual harassment, manipulation, and child grooming. Bonus. Uh. This came out around the same time as Russell Simmons, who, according to the Beastie Boys book, is the biggest creep you've ever heard of. And Ethan Kath of Crystal Castles was also accused of sexual assault. So it's unclear if charges were ever filed against Jesse Lacey at all by both women who had very creepy, upsetting stories about him soliciting nudes and all sorts of other shit. Please Google it if you are more interested, because I don't really want to get into it. But I will just end it by saying, fuck brand new anyway. So, Taking Back Sunday, their original lineup included John Nolan on guitar, Stephen DeJosephs on drums, and Antonio Longo as their lead singer. It's unclear if they ever recorded a single song in this configuration, but at some point early on, John Nolan bang Jesse Lacey's girlfriend, which led to Lacey quitting the band and then starting brand new. This internal issue will also serve as inspiration for a lot of tell all your friends. Wait, is that why they were named, in fact, brand new? Probably. I don't, I didn't really get into any of that. I sort of went down like a rabbit hole with the sexual assault stuff because I, I, I feel like I saw it, but I couldn't really remember. It was, it was a lot of stuff was happening at the same time in 2017. So I didn't quite remember, but I didn't get, I wasn't ever a huge fan of brand new. So I didn't really look into it too much. Anyway, initially Adam Lazara joined Taking Back Sunday as their bassist. And around that same time, their drummer quit and was replaced with Mark O'Connell with this lineup of John Nolan, Antonio Longo, Adam Lazaro, Eddie, Eddie Reyes, and Mark O'Connell, they finally record a self-titled EP and go on tour. Sometime in 2001-ish, though, Longo, the lead singer, leaves the band, Lazaro gets promoted to lead singer, and Sean Cooper joins them on bass. They record a five-song EP, tour, and then start working on what we'll all come to know as Tell All Your Friends. Taking Back Sunday was greatly influenced by the Get Up Kids and Promise Ring. Lazaro and Nolan were roommates at the time. Quick fact about Get Up Kids. Please. Colin Rafferty, my professor that I mentioned in our Spice Girls episode who gave me the piece of gum, was in fact lab partners in chemistry in high school with one of the members of the Get Up Kids. Oh. Yeah. Fun fact. Huh. Shout out to Colin Rafferty. There are much more of these like strange connections to people who went to high school with other people in bands that will come later on. Oh, yeah. Uh, So, Lazara and Nolan were roommates at the time and worked on a lot of music at home together in the band's off hours. They also had a practice space in Lindenhurst, New York, where they practiced and wrote their first song, Great Romances of the 20th Century, which members felt was better than anything they had done before and sounded a lot different than other Long Island acts who were in the pop-funk kind of arena that they were in. I I hesitate to call them funk. I was just (laughs) doing some... Uh, leisurely copy pasting there and I would say it was like pop punk emo it it sounded a little bit different because it incorporated some things that screamo bands were known for and also hardcore bands the group wrote music together but Lazara and Nolan were in charge of all the lyrics well a majority of the lyrics at least one member would typically come up with like a part or a riff which the rest of the group would then expand on into a song and many of the songs featured Lazara and Nolan's use of call and response vocals which you can hear throughout all of tell all your friends as I mentioned a lot of this album's inspiration was taken from the Jeff Lacey John Nolan fallout especially because Nolan knew Lacey for all of his life and was seriously working through a lot of feelings through his writing. In addition to that, though, the group also tackled topics like 
ending a long-term relationship or a summer fling. The process of figuring out who you are and what you want to be and coming to terms with that. And then a lot of it also sort of centered around Nolan coming to terms with his Christian upbringing. Nolan and Lazaro had a concept where some of the lyrics would be read like, oh, you're playing like the guy part and I'm playing the girl part. And that's where like the call and response sort of comes from, like a couple essentially getting into an argument or working through some problems out loud in sort of a dialogue versus um, a POV of one person in one song. Half of their song titles came from sitting around watching TV late at night, and the song structure is very similar on all of the songs. There's a quiet verse, a big bridge, a big chorus, a repeat, a breakdown, another chorus, and then it ends. They'd written and demoed a majority of Tell All Your Friends and filmed a music video for Great Romances of the 20th Century before they signed with Victory Records in, De- in December of 2009. Tell All Your Friends was produced by Sal Villanova and was recorded at Big Blue Meanies in New Jersey. Side note, Victory Records will turn out to be a wee bit shady of an em- enterprise. This is my shocked face. <laughs> they end up getting sued by some of their big label bands that brought them to prominence like Hawthorne Heights and Thursday. And... Taking Back Sunday is probably one of their biggest selling bands on their album. Or, I'm sorry, one of the biggest selling bands on their label. They released Great Romances in March of 2002, and it was distributed radio stations by Victory as their first single. And Tell Your Friends came out later in March on the 26th. To promote the album, they targeted people who were familiar with the label and also fans of emo. In Chicago, New York, and L.A., Victory gave out 20,000 samplers at a cost of about $100,000. Red Distribution, who handled the distribution arm of Victory, was aware that the group didn't have any radio play and started to post the songs and the albums and the album on emo websites. So a Yahoo group with over 1,300 people in it became Taking Back Sunday fans because they were able to download demos of Bike Scene and Head Club. So with that tactic, that's what they were hoping to increase sales with. In addition to that, they also had TV commercials that aired on the relatively new MTV2 and Fuse channel that were all dedicated to music videos and music. Despite no airplay, or at least a little bit of airplay, Tell All Your Friends sold 110,000 copies by March 2003. By the end of the year, sold 252,000 copies. By April 2004, the album had sold nearly 400,000 copies, and by September 2005, it was certified gold. And in April of 2010, the album sold over 1 million copies worldwide. Tell All Your Friends is Taking Back Sundays and Victory Records' best-selling record, and it would go on to become Victory's longest-running record on Billboard and independent album charts. Great Romances of the 20th Century charted at number 33 in UK rock and metal singles in 2011, which is weird that it came about so late. But something like, I feel like Lizzo is really good evidence of that currently, where Truth Hurts came out in 2017, and it just hit number one in 2019, and something like putting it in commercials, her star rising, her music being prominently featured in a movie that a lot of people saw, are things that can kind of bolster sales randomly years later. Tell all your friends was named in hopes that people would literally just tell all of their friends about Taking Back Sunday. (laughs) The album came out, as the band lovingly refers to, around the same time as Friendster was starting, and one of their tactics was to burn CDs to sell at shows because they didn't print enough records to give them supply for tour stops and stuff and different shows. And so one batch, they tried to spray paint it silver to, like, make it look cool, but the paint job ultimately melted off in people's CD players. Gabe Saporta, 
of Cobra Starship and Midtown is responsible for introducing the band to Jillian Newman, who would go on to become their manager, because he received a package from Victory with a bunch of Taking Back Sunday stuff and played it for her one time when he was visiting L.A., which is just a really strange small-town connection. So the biggest tracks, I think, in and especially when you think about Tell All Your Friends, are these three that I will list off. You can fight me in some comments if you believe that there are different songs like Bike Scene or Cut From The Team or whatever. Or not Cut From The Team, but the other, there's no I in Team. If you think that's better than what I'm about to say, that's completely fine. You're entitled to your wrong opinion. Cute Without The E, Cut From The Team. Lazara and O'Connell came up with the opening riff at Lazara's dad's house in North Carolina and then made it into a full-fledged song at John Nolan's suggestion. The lyrics were a result of a relationship that Lazara had recently gotten out of. The lyrics are extremely dark. They reference a lot of suicidal tendencies, finger on the trigger, me face down across your floor. It's an emotional response to finding out that a partner has recently cheated on you. And as tense as these lyrics may be, this is a hallmark of Taking Back Sunday's lyrical style. The title comes from the band's friend, Mike Duvane, who said that he was cut from the team at one of their tour stops, there is a Vans Warped Tour 25th anniversary video where they talk about this album, and that's where I got that quote from. The music video for Cute Without the E uh, premiered on Launch.com, which I don't know if you remember or have oh, heard of yeah, that. Yahoo's music site. It was like a precursor to, to Pandora. Okay, great. Yeah, I, I did user. not remember Launch.com. I actually had a Launch um, account and had several stations. Well, it premiered there in December, and their video was directed by one of their friends, who was also associated with the uh, Victory Records label, and it was inspired by the 1999 film Fight Club, which was a band favorite. Their other best songs, Great Romances of the 20th Century, it is as grandiose as this title suggests. The buildup really stems from Lazara knowing that he's going to be ending this relationship and it's just sort of like a knot in your chest that immediately starts when you hear it because a lot of the tension comes from the girlfriend or the partner knowing what's coming as referenced in the lyrics she said come on come on let's just get it over with and Lazara's ability to show that he won't take something lying down is super fucking dramatic in the best emo way possible I feel like that lyric and repeating it over and over again definitely plays into those um, screamy, you-must-hear-me feelings that you feel as a teenager a lot of the time. But of course, their best song from this album is Your So Last Summer. I think people like to argue that it falls somewhere between like pop and punk and emo, but whatever. Whatever genre you want to call it, I do think that it has become, for lack of a better term, a summer anthem dedicated to flings and their consequences. These grass stains on my knees, they don't mean a thing. If I'm just bad news, then you're a liar. And there are so many lines in Taking Back Sunday's history that you think of that all just come from this one song. Especially, the truth is, you could slit my throat and with one last gasping breath, I'd apologize for bleeding on your shirt. I think that everybody felt that when he screamed saying it and it definitely goes down as one of their most emotional over-the-top well-known lines to ever exist the title your last you're so last summer comes from when Lazara and Nolan were at the movies with one of their friends and as as they were leaving the theater someone made reference to something that Sarah their friend thought was passe and she said that it was so last summer meaning that they were late to the party in September, Years of Last Summer was, was released as a radio single. The video 
directed by the same person who directed Great Romances of the 20th Century. He directed this. It debuted on MTV November 24th. And in the video, we have the part of Nolan, who is the call and response singer to Lazara's lead singerness, played by Public Enemies Flavor Flav. In full <laughs> Flavor Flav Public Enemy getup. Big ass clock giant sunglasses i was very i remember feeling really impressed that he could lip sync that entire song if you ever watch flavor of love he doesn't remember much like he has to name women other names because he doesn't want to bother to remember their names so the fact that he remembered <laughs> all of the lyrics to the song truly was spectacular yeah i'm actually thinking remembering this yes that was insane. i forced you to watch this music video you on did. saturday you did and he was vividly lip-syncing and jumping so much had so much energy so much energy i did in fact see public enemy at a festival like 10 years ago and me too same kind of energy did you go to vegas in vegas no i was at the virgin free festival in uh in maryland oh at the meriwether post pavilion close enough <laughs> okay well I hope you had a good laugh about Flavor Flav because it's about to get dork. So the where you want to be era, which is in the phase, in the transition, I should say, between tell all your friends and where you want to be is quite tumultuous. Mm. So while touring to support tell all your friends, Adam Mazzara fell off stage and gashed his face and dislocated his hip, which forced them to drop out of their tour. And it also forced them to start working on new music. This will be around the time that the band starts to fall apart. At the same time, Lazaro was in the middle of a drinking problem and dating his roommate, John Nolan's sister. The rest of the band had quit drinking a long time ago, and Lazaro allegedly resented them for it. Oh, it gets so much worse. (laughs) Oh, so much worse. It's it's a dark hole. Everybody had some problems in 2003. You know, I was struggling um, studying for AP classes. Some people were battling alcoholism. Everybody goes through their thing. Everyone has their struggle. As Kathy Lee Griffith would say, everybody has a story. So, Lazara was constantly in a bad mood, which happens when you're a fucking alcoholic, and declined to get help with his drinking. Sean Cooper, their bassist, that, a.k.a. his replacement, began to feel that there was a wedge, an alcohol-sized wedge, driving between their friendship. After playing a festival date in April of 2003, some comments were made between Nolan and Lazara that ultimately would be the, f- the last straw, not only for Nolan, but also for Sean Cooper. The official statement for their departure was that they were exhausted from touring, but they went on to form Straylight Run with Nolan's sister, Michelle, and... <sighs> I love that band. Sorry. Oh. That's one I that's one of my favorite emo bands. Continue. Well, he went on to form it with his sister Michelle and uh, their drummer Will Noon, and they ceased all contact with members of Taking Back Sunday. Nolan later revealed that there was constant fighting within the group and each member was feeling that they weren't receiving the credit that they deserved for the group's success. In addition to that, he felt that him and Lazara had grown apart as friends. And a week after their departures, a meeting was held in an attempt to get Nolan and Lazara to get to a good place where they could actually reconcile and get back together as a band. But as the members attempted to talk out their problems, the meeting resulted in Nolan storming out and that was kind of it. But if it makes you feel any better in 2010, they come back to the band. So I assume that Adam Lazara has gotten help for his drinking issues since he's continued on with the band and people have come back and everything seems to be okay now. But in 2003, it was not fun. 
The band underwent a short period where they were unsure what they were going to do next. They thought about breaking up. There were rumors that they were going to break up because they dropped out of a tour with Brand New in the UK. Eventually, through Eddie Reyes's connections, they were able to score Fred Mastrino in place for Nolan. And he joined the band in August of 2003. And then they scored bassist Matt Rubano, who grew up with the drummer and joined the group on his recommendation. Where You Want to Be was released in July of 2004 on Victory Records, although it sounded slightly different from Tell All Your Friends because they used different instruments, and Mascherino and Rubano both attended jazz college. According to Lazaro, they really cleaned up and lightened their sound. The album retains the call-and-response vocals that were featured on Tell All Your Friends. Despite Lazaro wanting to include Mascherino as much as possible, he felt that there was no need for them to be singing the dual call-and-response parts if it didn't feel like it was necessary. They simplified the dual vocal approach at some point, but maintained the same energy level and mood that was present in their previous album. He added that the two new members made them sound better and that the album was due in no time, like tell all your friends, the album's song titles were gleaned primarily from TV. The first single, A Decade Under the Influence, was released to radio in June 2004, while Taking Back Sunday was on the Vans Warped Tour in 2004. They appeared at the Reading Festival in England, and the group toured Europe after that and would go on to tour with Blink-182 at one point because of the European connection, and then Tom DeLonge would create the concept, and it's unclear if he's the director or not, but it sounds like he had a heavy hand in their music video for this photograph is proof. I know, you know, which was filmed in 48 hours in New York. After they filmed that music video, they went on a winter tour with the Treyu and funeral for a friend. And this photograph is proof was released to radio in January of 2005. And that's around the same time that taking back Sunday began co-headlining a tour with Jimmy Eat world. Like I said, they are a workhorse touring band. That is their thing. And I think a lot of pop punk and emo bands and hardcore bands and screamo metal bands, they all make so much money from From touring touring that it's ridiculous for them to not. I mean, even reading Jeff Tweedy's biography recently or his memoir since he wrote it, it will go toward all the fucking time, especially in the beginning. It's. I mean, and even Uncle Tupelo, too, obviously. Every one of the bands that I I talked about, same thing. Like, there are points where I don't even talk about the tours they went on because there were so many tours. We're we're talking four to five plus tours. I mean, I cut a bunch of the tours. I cut so many, and I'm still rambling about tours, and I apologize. So, their album did very well commercially. It debuted at number three on the Billboard 200s chart with over 222,000, or I'm sorry. With around 220,000 copies sold, it became the number one best-selling independent rock album of the year, eventually selling 634,000 copies by June of 2005, and it was listed as one of the top 50 albums in 2004. A decade under the influence reached number 16 on the alternative song charts. Where You Want to Be is Victory's highest charting album. In 2005, it was also certified gold in the U.S., because they hit over 500,000 over 500,000 copies. Instead of spending money towards marketing on the radio and getting radio play, Victory Records once again turned to the internet and fans to spread the word about the upcoming album. They targeted consumers once again that were familiar with Victory Records as well as fans of emo music, and this way they created a 
um, they created a street team that was all about Taking Back Sunday that had about 25,000 individuals that were just dedicated to promoting the album. In return, these fans would get pre-sale tickets, win shoes, and other prizes. In addition to that, they distributed a sampler album that had a bunch of songs from Where You Want to Be to get the fans excited, which is a very similar tactic to what they did for Tell All Your Friends as well. Taking Back Sunday frequently toured over eight months to support this album. The band received even more mainstream exposure by appearing on late night talk shows, as well as contributing their second single, This Photograph is Proof, to the soundtrack, Spider-Man 2. More on that in a minute. Quick song facts. Bonus Mosh Part 2 was the first song that was written by this new lineup. Its title comes from, you guessed it, a friend of the band. The band was playing demos for this friend, and during a section of the song, a friend exclaimed, Whoa, that's like a bonus mosh part two. Cool. A decade under the influence is about a person's realization that they understand less about the world than they thought. Hosara wrote the lyrics after breaking up with a long-term girlfriend. <laughs> this part really makes me laugh, which is why I had to keep it. She had purchased tickets to a Coldplay show, and despite the breakup, they still went, and it was very awkward. Slow Dance on the Inside was one of the last tracks that they wrote with former band members Nolan Cooper. And so they called a truce since O'Connell had worked on some Stray Light Run tracks with Nolan Cooper letting Taking Back Sunday, quote unquote, keep the song. Okay, we're going to pick up speed now because we're on to Louder Now in 2006. In June of 2005, the band signed with Warner Brother Records and it would begin the recording of their latest album, Louder Now, and would begin recording their their third album, Louder Now, later on in 2005. In September, Taking Back Sunday had begun working with Eric Valentine, who'd produced Queens of the Stone Age's song of Songs for the Deaf and Third Eye Blind's self-titled album in 1997. By April 25th, 2006, they released Louder Now on Warner Brothers. The members' comments on the album reflected the dramatic change the band had undergone since the last since the release of their last album saying that they didn't take their move to a major label lightly taking back sunday received a ton of press and even more exposure being on a main or being on a big name record label like warner brothers by appearing on the tonight show with jay leno jimmy kimmel late night with conan and they were also featured in a degrassi next generation episode entitled what it feels like to be a ghost in December of 2006, the band released its first documentary, Louder Now Part 1, featuring behind-the-scenes tour footage and four live concerts. The following months of touring to support Louder Now, Taking Back Sunday appeared on the American leg of Live Earth in July of 2007. And during that same summer, Taking Back Sunday was also part of Linkin Park's Project Revolution tour, along with My Chemical Romance, him, and a bunch of other bands that you would assume would be on this sort of lineup in 2007. By 2010, the original lineup, a.k.a. Tell All Your Friends lineup, reunites and records, releases an album of brand new material, 2011's Taking Back Sunday. Taking Back Sunday then embarked on a Tell All Your Friends 10th anniversary tour in 2012, during which the band performed their album in entirety, start to finish, all the hits. In October of 2018, the band announced a compilation album to celebrate their 20th anniversary, which was earlier this year, along with a worldwide tour. Their album entitled 20 was released in January of 2019. 20 has a bunch of songs from their Victory record label days and also obviously Warner Brothers records, and which is now owned by Concord Music. And for their 20th anniversary tour, the band decided to flip a coin. Well, they made a specialty coin that they were going to flip before every show each night. 
and it would decide whether or not they would start with a song off of Bladder Now or Where You Want to Be. And uh, Tell All Your Friends will be played every single night, but I don't know what the odds are on if they played Louder Now or Where You Want to Be first, but it sounds like they did a very good job of encompassing all of their songs that people know the best. And most recently, like literally just this year, they toured with Vans Warped Tour as part of their 25th anniversary festival. So the connection that I have between the two bands that I talk about, Taking Back Sunday and Dashboard Confessional, is weirdly the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. Both Taking Back Sunday and Dashboard are featured on the soundtrack, vindicated by Dashboard Confessional, which I think accompanies the closing credits, and this photograph is proof by Taking Back Sunday. I don't know what sorcery this is, but they're both on that soundtrack. In addition to Switchfoot. And Jet. and, And there's one more. I can't remember off the top of my head, but those were the other ones. I was like, wow, that's really a capsule. The 2003-ish, yeah. Yeah. For sure. So I'm done talking for a bit because I feel like I talked a lot. I have to say, I really had a hard time distilling Taking Back Sunday down. How many pages of notes was that? I have 10 pages of notes total, but I have seven just on Taking Back Sunday. Six and a half. Wow. I mean, their breakup and the way that the band dissolved and came back together, they are really, really prolific. That's another thing about emo bands that I completely forgot. Of course, I was able to listen to their songs nonstop and constantly have new songs. It's because they were pumping them out constantly because they were on tour. That's how they made money was record sales and touring and support and having tours that support that record. So it just felt like a lot. And I feel like it took me so long to just start this research because I just didn't even know where to fucking begin. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it's interesting because, like, for how short of a time some of these bands were together, some of, I mean, they were pretty prolific in some cases. Like, for something corporate, which is one of my bands that I'm just about to go into, they were together total, really, for about six years. And they released, a like, a couple of albums, like, put out a lot of music. And in two years, they put two albums out in two years, which people don't really do anymore i don't That's think just the spice girls thing yeah it really is <laughs> maybe they're the spice girls of the emo scene anyway something corporate otherwise known as soco <laughs> who called uh, them that though they're fans mm. not me mm. um they it's just like t- people they're like san fran you're like no no, no one no, says no, that no 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 they started around 1998 um this might be a controversial opinion but we do not get something corporate without ben folds five i will put that out there and I will stick to my opinion. Just like Ben <laughs> Folds made rocking out to a piano a cool thing for alternative rock bands in the 90s, as one article on Observer put it best, quote, SoCo made studded belt wearers regret quitting their piano lessons, end quote. <laughs> and that is because their distinction from the other emo bands of their heyday was having a full-fledged pianist in Andrew McMahon. SoCo made you regret quitting the piano the way Lizzo makes you regret quitting flute or any sort of woodwind because it's dorky. I quit it in eighth grade, and I regret it to this day after seeing her in concert. I mean, weirdly enough, I regret quitting the violin after seeing yellow card in 2004 they all and this is something margaret and i talked about before starting this recording every single emo band has their distinct calling card another bingo card in the making yellow card has a violinist something corporate has a full-fledged pianist i think with fallout boy the big one is that the bassist is the most famous member of the band um, i think each of them again has their one really distinct calling card of what separates them from the rest of the emo bands 
So something corporate is from Orange County, California, uh, specifically Dana Point. That's so weird. I thought they were Canadian this whole time. Nope. Nope. But that is like a name that I would... So they're not Canadian. Nope. They're... They're from Dana Point in Orange County. Yes, ma'am. So they meet in Dana Hills High School. Andrew McMahon, the lead singer and pianist, and Brian Ireland, who is the drummer. They had a class together and they became friends. And they decided to start a band after Ireland got a drum kit for Christmas. The band went on to also include Kevin Clutch, nicknamed Page on Bass. Um, wait, wait, Clutch was his nickname? Yep. Who gave him the nickname? The early 2000s or late 90s. The late 90s gave him the nickname? The late 90s gave him the nickname. Mm, I feel like it's something that he called himself and that you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> That's all. The band was originally known as Left Here and won what? a Battle of the Bands concert but broke up shortly thereafter. What? Yep. In September, ninth, and they were left there. <laughs> in oh, wow. Good burn. Yep. In September 1998, the three band members were formed together and joined forces with Richard Hernandez, who would become their rhythm guitarist, and Josh Partington, who would be their lead guitarist and backing vocals, and they became something corporate. They had a lot of trouble securing gigs during this time and spots in local Battle of the Band competitions because they were on all underage. And that's something to note with a lot of these emo bands. There are some that are very much, you know, older and whatnot, but a lot of them get their start and their big break when they are still either in high school or just have just graduated. A lot of times they're under 21. And this was the case with something corporate. They were around 18. Throughout high school, in addition to having trouble securing gigs because of their age, they wanted to play at the local venue that was known as the Coach House, which was owned by Gary Folgner, and I apologize if I mispronounced that. He kept declining the band's offers because they didn't have any recorded music that he could listen to. One time, though, he saw them in concert, and he gave them the money to record their debut album. That's how good he thought they were. So they record their debut album, Ready, Break, in 2000, just right after graduating high school. They recorded it at the Galaxy Theater in Santa Ana, which Gary Fulner also owned. Um, they released the album through the Coach House Company. Around this time, Hernandez leaves the band and gets replaced by William Tell, who we'll talk about later. <laughs> for very interesting Just tuck reasons. that little name nugget behind your ear for later. Very interesting old millennials podcast connection. I am telling you, the old millennial cinematic universe is real. O-M-C-U, baby. <laughs> 2,500 <laughs> copies of this album were pressed and sold only at their shows. And what's distinct is that the artwork on this has no barcode. So as to keep it kind of underground. Sure. <laughs> Uh, four years later, the CD was re-released exclusively to members of their their something corporate fan club. But for many, for for the original pressing, it was only available at their shows. They were originally first signed to Drive Through Records, and they released their album "Leave Through the Window," which is the big kind of breakthrough in May 2002, jointly through Drive Through and MCA Records, who was the distributor of Drive Through. And we'll see a little bit of that with the uh, label that we'll talk about later, Fueled by Ramen. We will see some distribution deals come into the picture in the future where people want to retain that indie cred, but they want to be able to have that leverage that you get with a major label. So around this time, once they've released this album, the album charts at number 101 on the Billboard 200, and it has sold over 200,000 copies. 
They performed on the Warp Tour and were supporting Newfound Glory after the album's release and then co-headlined a tour with the Juliana Theory. After that, their next album, North, was released in 2003. During the production and recording of that album, MCA Records, which owned Drive Through Records or worked with Drive Through Records, was consolidated into Geffen Records, which was all under Universal Music Group. Anyone who had been under MCA, including like all the artists and all the staff that worked there, ended up going over to Geffen Records. So this release for the album North happens under Geffen. The album specifically was conceptualized by Andrew McMahon and Josh Partington as a winter album in contrast to Leave Through the Window, which they felt was a more summer album. It was released in 2003, and from mid-July to late August, they supported 311 on their tour of the U.S., which is an interesting contrast, but that would have been an interesting crowd to be a part of. Space, which is one of the songs from the album, was released as a single on September 8th, and then it was released to Radio Day Later. A music video for that song was released. A music video for that song was premiered on the OC or while the OC was airing on September 16th, connection to one of our previous episodes. <laughs> the album charted at number 24 on the Billboard 200 and sold almost, it sold almost 350,000 copies. They would later, later go on to open for Good Charlotte and at the end of 2003, they headlined a US tour and the supporting bands included on that tour were RX Bandits, May, another great emo band, Days Away, and The Format, one of my absolute favorite bands, if not my favorite, of the pop-punk emo stage. Beginning I definitely saw May live as part of a larger emo showcase at oh, the Henry yeah. Fonda Theater oh, yeah. with a dude that I had a crush on. And I definitely pulled one of those things where I was like, yeah, they're about to like come up like right now. Like, oh my God, I love this song. He's like, that's not the band. I'm like, oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. And I did that two other times. Rad. <laughs> yeah. And eventually I got so tired because it was like going on for so long. I just sat down on the floor in a mosh pit. Oh my God. <laughs> well, it wasn't like a mosh pit. Like it was just the crowd and like a pit was going to start whenever a band was going to show up. But I was just so fucking over it. I just sat you... down and was you risked your life out of boredom. I wasn't even boredom. Like, literally, my feet hurt. I was oh, yeah. doing a lot of dance at the time, even more so than now, and I was just exhausted. I was like, I can't stand here anymore and pretend like I know these other bands. I can't remember who the other bands were that they were touring with. I think Hawthorne Heights and maybe another, I can't remember. That sounds about right. That's a pretty, those are pretty big mainstays. And maybe it was circuit. something corporate, too. Mm -hmm. He was like, I, whatever bands he was into, I was also pretending to be into. Yeah, that makes sense. That that would that would that would check out. Beginning of the end of this band starts in two thousand four, when William Tell leaves the group in February to focus on his own music and his solo stuff. He is replaced by Bobby Anderson, who and they the band go on to tour with Yellow Card, ding ding ding, the format again, and the Rocket Summer, which I was a big fan of too. Oh my God, the Rocket Summer! Yep. Shut the fuck yep. up. Yep. They then opened for The Offspring for a leg of their tour later that year. <laughs> Sorry. By the time they've done all this touring, because who wouldn't be exhausted? They are exhausted and decide to take a hiatus in summer 2004. They then reunite in 2005 in with uh, starting in January and Febru February of Is that Is it really year. like a reunion, though? Well, not reunite. I guess you would say... Come, to, come, come back, back from to, vacation? Come back from vacation. They took a six-month hiatus and came back. They toured across the U.S. alongside Straylight Run, Hidden in Plain View, The Academy Is, who we'll talk oh, about God. later, and Armor for Sleep. 
after that, a one-off show once or twice over the next two years, that was pretty much kind of what they did. They were still technically a band for through 2005 and 2006, but they weren't releasing any new material. We're not touring really religiously or uh, nothing like being anymore. called technically a band. <laughs> yeah. But this is around the time when Andrew McMahon, Richard Hernandez, and Bobby Anderson would go on and work on what would become known as Jack's Mannequin. Oh, jeez. Yeah, it's important to talk about Jack's Mannequin because that's like a huge project that, you know, ultimately defines Andrew McMahon's career after something corporate. He, while recording his first album as Jack's Mannequin called In Transit, he's diagnosed with leukemia at 22. (gasps) No. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. So what he, is this, 50-50? Jesus. Right, and it, what's really sad, and the irony of it all, is that there was already a song on this album called Dear Jack about a boy who's been diagnosed God damn with it. leukemia. What the fuck? It Are you watching Nicholas Sparks movies? I know. Like, we've just been going through so much tragedy porn in those back-to-back uh, episodes. Like, we're can, I cannot be, handle any more bad news. Next week has to be a goddamn carnival ride. <laughs> the irony of that song obviously being on the album it led that song. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Irony. Not well. I just meant like he was diagnosed, and then the irony. No, I know what you mean. It's just it's just so bleak. All of it's bleak. I'm sorry. Please just tell me that he lives. He does. He does. Great. He. This song. (laughs) led him to change the name of his side project from The Mannequins to Jack's Mannequin. So the album In Transit becomes really successful. He tours quite a bit with it and goes on to release three additional albums as Jack's Mannequin. And he goes on and founds the Dear Jack Foundation, which specifically offers young adult cancer patients with support groups and other services. So really focusing on like the 18 to 35 range, I believe, which um, I think a lot of cancer charities I think of, it's always, you know, either pediatric cancer or just kind of a general cancer foundation. So good stuff. He releases three albums, and after the third album in 2011, he announces that he's retiring the Jack's Mannequin name and will just release music under his own name. And Andrew McMahon, in terms of all these, when he is touring as Jack's Mannequin or just as Andrew McMahon, he actually doesn't really play that many something corporate songs. He might play one during the whole thing, and it's, uh, he's very, and with Jack's Mannequin, he doesn't play very much from in transit. He's not a big nostalgic type of person. He really doesn't like to pander to that. Um, Interesting. But, That's the polar opposite of Dashboard. Right, right. He. This is a very distinct 
difference from a lot of these groups that are like we can make a lot of we, money. We off of thrive this. on nostalgia. Thrive literally, on these hits. our entire business model is based around nostalgia. Yeah. McMahon, and also is I think they do it. genuinely. At least the two bands that I cover are, do genuinely like playing their hits. Yes. Yeah. I would, and then the other big notable of like where are they now with something corporate is that William Tell. <laughs> would go on after leaving the band he went to he graduated from usc's law school in 2014 and became a lawyer and started dating none other than lauren elsie conrad frequent subject of old millennials episodes and then married her they had a kid together liam so they have two babies now don't they they're pregnant with their second right now. oh my goodness so a match made in old millennials heaven right there ultimately emo band meet laguna beach absolutely I want to forgive you, and I want to, to forget, forget you. So they did a few reunion shows to mark their 10th anniversary earlier on this Even decade. with William Tell? I believe William Tell was not a part of that because they had replaced him with Bobby Anderson. Oh, I see. I could be wrong. I apologize, readers or listeners, if... Readers? <laughs> Emily, as I've been told multiple times as a copywriter, nobody reads anymore. But they, apart from that, the band has not gotten back together and ridden the nostalgia wave as much as other emo bands. I would like to point out a few song highlights. Uh, first one, Woke Up in a Car. I'm pretty sure the song was on one of the store mixes when I worked at Aeropostal in high school. Or would not be surprised. In high school for three months. we did. A, there was a lot of emo stuff on those mixes. Um, I would actually really love to have those mixes still. The emo lyric highlight, because I think for something corporate, it's really worth having a little highlight for each of the songs I'm going to point out. I met a girl who kept tattoos for homes that she had loved that she had loved. If I were her, I'd paint my body until all my skin was gone. Get out. Yep. <laughs> Get out of here now. Punk rock princess. The most emo lyric and a lot of these were very emo so I had to pick one. Whoa, you know, you only burn my bridges. Whoa, you know, you just can't let it sink in. You could be my heroine. You could be my heroine. Okay. And then, of course, something corporate's magnum opus, Constantine, with a K, obviously. Uh, this is a big departure from most emo songs because it is an almost 10-minute long piano ballad. Very different from the rest of what we're working with. It was only released on an album that came out in Japan and then later on a compilation for drive through Records. And so people kind of downloaded it illegally through Kaza or LimeWire or whatever, but that's kind of how it made the, the rounds. Later, it was featured on their Greatest Hits compilation. Um, there's an article on BuzzFeed by Ryan Broderick that refers to this song as, quote, a free bird for suburban teenage romance, and I have to agree. So it was hard to narrow down the most emo lyrics of this song because they're all pretty equally emo, but I picked, quote, and you don't want to be here in the future, so you say the present's just a pleasant interruption to the past. And you don't want to look much closer because you're afraid to find out all is all this hope you had sent into the sky by now had crashed. And it did because of me. And that is something corporate. So deep. Well, in order to get you ready for what I'm about to talk about, I'm going to need you to breathe in for luck. I'm going to need you to breathe in so fucking deep because this air is blessed. You share with me. This night is wild, so calm, so dull. These hearts, they race for self-control because we were talking about Dashboard Confessional. <laughs> How exciting. 
I will most certainly call <laughs> Chris Caraba Chris Cabrera at some point in time during this. Just please know that and know that I don't mean to. I can't help it. Even though I've written his name a bajillion times, please know that every time I've written his last name, I've thought to myself, not Cabrera, which probably is not helping. Question. But- is Chris Caraba related to the Italian restaurant chain Carabas? Like, is that any... Relation? I don't think so, because... Okay. Chris Caraba is from West Hartford, Connecticut. Okay. And after his parents divorced when he was three, he eventually moves with his mom, brother, stepbrother, and stepdad to Boca Raton, Florida at age 16. So I don't really think he's part of the Caraba Italian franchise on the East Coast. (laughs) Although it would be nice, I'm sure. Uh, As a teenager, Caraba was interested in skateboarding and music, and quite frankly, same, but only as, like, a spectator, not as, like, a participant. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a dude who skateboarded or was in a band, I was going to make a bad decision about you. He was a skater boy. No, no. Nope, no, 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 no. That song came on my Spotify today. I was very unhappy. I was definitely one of those, like, punks that hated Avril Lavigne because she was inauthentic. She's a poser, man. Oh, me and my best friend Marianne had a picture of Avril in our binder. We, like, circled all of, like, her poser wear. And was like, she got, like, <laughs> so fucking dumb. We'd, like, circle her bracelets and be like, $13 at Hot Topic. Then we'd circle the time and be like, $5 at Macy's. Like, just, and, like, just weird stupid ass ways this girl does not give a fuck she is laughing literally all the way to the bank although i get the last laugh because i never marry someone from fucking nickelback so there's that but or some 41 lord i forget about that dude all the time dated paris hilton well i should we will talk about her next week in our hollywood it girls episode has i mean historically low standards yes but anyway, back to Chris Caraba and the things we have in common and why he was a band built in a lab for just me and other girls like me. Anyway, he started out making music with a guitar that was given to him by his uncle and also by singing in his high school choir, which makes so much fucking sense now. It's ridiculous. His overly emotional, very saccharine... Yes? As a person that was also in choir, please chime in. I tweeted about this last week. Emo, I believe, had to have been invented to some extent by a 10 or 1 in high school who wanted to get laid. That's too specific for my background, but I believe that you are correct. (laughs) (laughs) I was only in choir till like, I don't know, like maybe ninth grade. Anyway, him being in choir makes sense for me, and it wasn't until college that he became more serious about music and joined his first band, The Vacant Andes, and later with he joined the agency, which is where he will meet his eventual drummer, Mike Marsh, and form Dashboard Confessional. For several years, Chris taught at an elementary school in South Florida and played with the group called Further Seems Forever. I'll never forget when a friend who was a, a high school friend who was in a high school emo band called Back Pocket Memory, who achieved some modicum of success, I would say, especially in, like, the local emo scene, and I feel like their name was, like, perfectly emo. When he told me that Chris Cabara... Did I say that right? Chris Caraba. When he told me that Chris Caraba was in an emo band before Dashboard called Further Seems Forever, he blew my whole fucking mind. It was... 
maybe a little bit too emo. It was it wasn't melodic enough. I was not as into the lyrics as I was with Dashboard Confessional, but I was very excited to hear about a band before the actual band that I know them from. Similar to when a person who worked at uh, Penny Penny Lane Records in Burbank told me that. Jack White was in a band before the White Stripes, and it was called, like, The Jets or something. I forget now. And I listened to their record and was like, ooh, I'm cool. I know things before they get popular. Caraba was also a special education teacher prior to Dashboard Confessional, and he kept a guitar in his office to write songs during his downtime. Fun fact, of course Chris Caraba's favorite bands are The Cure and The Fucking Smiths. That makes perfect sense. I know that emo... In addition to the choir, The Smiths and The Cure, it's just like a fucking perfect storm of being sad. I know emo's supposed to have come out of hardcore punk music, but there is so much emotion that is so tied to the art rock of the 80s with like the cure and the smiths it is so robert smith and morrissey with higher voices i can't help but agree dashboard started out as a solo side project for caraba he recorded the drowning ep for fiddler records and the name dashboard confessional comes from the song a sharp new hint of tears the lyric on my way home this car hears my confessions brought to mind the phase dashboard confessional it's this sort of intimacy of having this, like, attractive, dark-haired, mysterious, sad hunk singing to you and just you and entrusting him. He's entrusting you with all of his secrets and how he really deep down feels inside. The message comes across the best in his debut album, Swiss Army Romance. Also was released through Fiddler Records in March of 2000, but was only limited to a thousand copy run. But shortly thereafter, he switched over to Drive Through Records and Drive Through re-released the album to have a more long and prolific run to necessitate the amount of copies that were being requested in November of 2000. Obviously, the standout track, there are multiple, but the biggest one is Screaming Infidelities. Duh. Mm-hmm. As we will later find out, some entrepreneurial fan decided to go back and edit in parts of an MTV made-for-TV movie starring starring Aaron Paul as a kid addicted to heroin (laughs) and his girlfriend, uh, Summer Phoenix, right? Of the Joaquin Phoenix, Joaquin Phoenixes? R.I.P. River Phoenix, yeah. Right, R.I.P., Whiskey A Go-Go, Never Forget, Hashtag, etc., etc., Um, they were in this MTV TV movie where they get addicted to heroin and one of them, I think Summer ODs, but she doesn't die. And so they spliced in parts of this movie with Screaming Infidelities, which, you know, it's a song about infidelity, not about ODing. So it felt a little bit jarring, but the song still holds, obviously, anytime somebody screams, your hair is everywhere. It creates an emotional response. Like Pavlov. Pavlov's emo child. Other standout tracks, Turpentine Chaser, which I love, Swiss Army Romance, obviously A Sharp New Hint of Tears, which is where the band gets its name from. But we must move on now to The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most, which was released in March of 2001. Using his connections through the punk scene, Caraba was able to perform a few tours as Dashboard, but a solo act. And Although the audience wasn't completely convinced of having a purely acoustic instrumentation, Caraba won crowds over because he is incredibly charming. So in, at some point in 2018, he Dashboard came back together. And so he was doing a lot of press tours. So he had an interview with the New York Times. He had an interview with Vice. And he had an interview with GQ where he talked about his impact on the emo scene. He talked about Jesse Lacey. He talked about a lot of stuff. But 
it really goes to show how charismatic and well-spoken he is. Although he is married, he's managed to keep his private life actually private. Nobody knows anything about his wife. You can try and Google her all you want. I know I fucking did, and I did not find shit. So good luck with that one. So it's just very interesting that he is an incredibly charming person who knows the persona that he's playing into, and I think he's been very smart about that. And I think that you can see a lot of it in the beginning of his career, especially during this time, where in October of 2000, Kabara announced his departure from Further Seems Forever. And in the following month, drive throughs version of his album was released, and he started working on The Places That You Come to Fear the Most. I love that the two names I always get the most confused with emo bands, which is Dashboard and Conventional and Something Corporate, were both drive through record artists. And what's interesting to note is that he will eventually go to Fueled by Ramen in a more recent iteration of this band. Huh. So, but before he started to record the places that you have come to fear the most, he started to think that Drive Through Records maybe wasn't a good fit after all and told them that. And so he decided to sign to, to Vagrant Records instead, which caused Drive Through to threaten litigation. In response, Caraba said that he only had a verbal agreement with Drive Through, and Drive Through took that to the upset Extreme Petty and ceased supplying, and Drive Through ceased a supply of the release of Swiss Army Romance to distributors, which in turn made it unavailable to any stores in brick and mortar because this was, I wouldn't say pre-internet time, but they didn't have the manpower to set up an online shop at the time. It wasn't as easy as it is now, obviously. When Caraba became aware, he decided he just needed to start working on a new album. So he flew to Florida, met his brother at the airport with his guitar, and spent the first three weeks of 2001 crafting songs for this album. The project evolved into a band consisting of Caraba, bassist Dan Bonebreak, Caraba's bandmate from Vacant Andes, and drummer Mike Marsh from the agency. The Places That You Have Come to Fear the Most was released in March of 2001. After a spring-summer tour, the group added Sunny Day real estate guitarist Dan Horner to the lineup and closed out the year with a six-week-long headlining tour. A music video was filmed for Screaming Infidelities in January of 2002 with the directors Maureen Egan and Matthew Barry. They will go on to direct all of their music videos, at least during this peak time of Dashboard. I don't know. I can't speak to it currently. I didn't look that deeply into it for 2019 times but the track was released in january and then the video debuted later that month and it was in heavy rotation at mtv and mtv2 following this the album was given retail exposure with listening booths at various big chain stores like if you remember like a virgin record store you could go into like a, a private listening booth and listen to the entire yeah. cd i think that's how i listened to fan mail by tlc nice there was a virgin records at this in the same shopping plaza that has the Sunset Five music or the Sunset Five movie theater on Sunset. Great story. I'm very well aware. Anyway, Screaming Infidelity received heavy airplay support, and in March and also in April, they went on a tour of the U.S. And by June, John Leffler joined the band as an additional guitarist. And in August, the group supported Weezer on a headlining arena tour. And following this, the band went on to tour with Vagrant's America Arena Tour alongside other Vagrant record bands. Music video for Saints and Sailors premiered on MTV2 in August. And the clip was shot at El the El Rey Theater in L.A. The places that you have come to fear the most sold 2,500 copies in its first week. 40,000 by August, 65,000 by the end of 2001, and by August 2003, it was certified gold by selling over 500,000 copies. Select tracks are 
Best Deceptions, which I quoted during a breakup in high school, which is all about somebody telling somebody that the charade is finally over and that they should kiss you hard because it's going to be the very last time that you will let them do this. Saints and Sailors was like the big single from this album, which is what they shot the music video for. But I think Best Deceptions is a really wonderful, angsty-ass breakup song. By 2002, three other musicians had joined Dashboard Confessional, including Jerry Castanellos, who was a former member of Further Seems Forever, and they started the process of recording the band's next album. But after the success of All the Places That You've Come to Fear the Most, Caraba was asked to perform MTV's Unplugged, and the subsequent live release marked the very first time that many of the songs were even recorded as a full-fledged band. Also in 2002, the music video for Screaming Infidelities won an MTV2 award at the MTV Music Awards, beating out Nora Jones, The Strokes, The Hives, Nappy Roots, and Music with a Q. That is such a 2002... Lineup. Yeah. Yeah, you might as well just, like, be, like, Jamiroquai as well. It's it's wild. So MTV Unplugged, which happened in December of 2002, is my first exposure to the band, was seeing the special. I think I just stumbled across it and, like, was immediately sucked in by the songs and the heavy emotion. And honestly, the crowd, because listening to this live Unplugged album again, hearing how invested the crowd was, especially in songs from Swiss Army Romance, which was an album that had only been released two years before, was an independent record. I, you, I had never heard of it, so to see all the people that were so deeply affected definitely influenced me in falling in love immediately with this band, in addition to the attractive lead singer. And then the more that you find out about him, like, I knew that his parents were divorced and that he wasn't close with his dad, and I was like, same! So there was a lot of that kind of happening as well. But Dashboard is the first non-platinum-selling artist to be featured on MTV Unplugged. This is also the first time Dashboard performs the tracks Remember to Breathe, Sharp New Hint of Tears, So Impossible, Turpentine Chaser, Living in Your Letters, For You to Notice, and Hands Down is a full band, unlike their originals, which only featured Caraba and then sometimes some other people featured throughout. Not all of the band members that we know them to be now. That's kind of like Foo Fighters to be honest like i you and that happens also even with like jack's mannequin when they like initially recorded it was just andrew mcmahon and then later more band members joined mtv's unplugged 2.0 sold 34,000 copies in the first week 149,000 copies by august 2003 i was definitely among one of those people as soon as i saw that special i marched my ass to a warehouse the very next day bought myself a copy after a few months the album was certified platinum, and it's considered a long-form music video. The album is f- the first to have peaked at number one at the top Heat Seeker chart and the top independent album chart. The album peaked at 111 on the Billboard 200, though. But I looked up what Heat Seekers are, and it's like new bands that are usually indie or mm. new artists that don't have major label support or multiple albums behind them. And that's how you end up on like a Heat Seeker chart, because I had to look it up. Because we had brought it up before, and we're like, what the fuck what is a Heat, heat Seeker? Seekers? Yeah, no, it's definitely come up before. As Dashboard became more of a staple on the radio and on MTV, they decided to reveal the album's next title, which is A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar, which will come out in August of 2003. This will mark Dashboard Confessional's third album and also their most commercially successful album to date. It debuted at number two on the Billboard charts, period. And they toured with Brand New, unfortunately, to support this album. A Mark Ambition of Brand Scar was initially planned for a July release, but eventually was pushed back to August through Vagrant Records' label that was a majority owner, but not in a controlling way, which is Interscope. The label founder, Rich Egan, 
thought that they if they waited, they could boost the sales and they could have more chance to market to people in the way that they had marketed to them before, which is internet, more grassroots, more like street team. And they wanted to offer them the best that they possibly could. Caraba was going to walk. He thought that Interscope had too much control. But after he renewed his contract, he saw that Interscope wasn't allowed to have the amount of control that he thought that they did and resigned. So it wasn't a big deal. They do have a bit of record label drama between Drive Through and Vagrant. And I decided to cut all of it because it was just sort of jargony and industry heavy. But this kind of like feeds into some of it was their hesitance to be making long-term commitments after being fucked over sometimes. Caraba was living in a condo with his brother at the time and made 40 demos using his Korg digital 8-track recorder. Musically, the demos ranged from alternative country to pop to Beach Boys. An earlier acoustic version of Hands Down appeared on the So Impossible EP when Chris Caraba was a solo act as Dashboard Confessional. And the song talks about obviously being in love and it's the happiest day of your life. The other big single was Rapid Hope Lost, which was written in an early writing process session. And Caraba and Mike Stroud wrote it together and it's all about not giving a second chance to an ex. Carry This Picture was written in the Soho Grand Hotel in New York and it's about finding love in a resort town in Florida. Obviously, Hands Down was their big single, and it was released in July. The music video was filmed for it shortly after in New York by Ningizi Stewart. And then that leads us into Dusk and Summer and The End, because quite frankly, I cannot talk about emo bands anymore. I feel emotionally drained doing research for both of these bands, to be quite honest. Dusk and Summer came out in May of 2005. Dashboard entered the studio to record this album with acclaimed producer Daniel Lanios. The album Dusk and Summer was released in June, and the first single was Don't Wait, followed by the release of this album. They toured, obviously, again with Say Anything and Ben Lee, and then followed a co-headlining arena tour with Brand New and Vindicated, which appears on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack, also is on Dusk and Summer. The end. Dashboard Confessional ended, allegedly, with their sixth studio album after the ending, but reunited in 2017 and released Crooked Shadows through Fueled by Ramen. Ding, ding, ding. Apparently, Chris Caraba and Taylor Swift are friends, because of course, which is why you saw him in that video in 2015 singing Hands Down to Taylor, who was singing it along with her best friend, whose name I don't know because I'm not a Swifty, and Haley Williams. Okay, and Haley Williams Abigail. from Paris. Sorry. Haley Williams from Paramore. That's it. That's all I wanted to say. And that's all that I have on Dashboard. He has a really good interview with GQ where they talk about how was his emo, his brand of emo music, was that a response to like hyper masculine rock and roll that was happening at the time? And he said not really, but he kind of goes into it and gives like a better explanation. So I highly recommend reading that. I don't necessarily recommend reading like the Vice Date article because it's a little bit, it's a little fan fangirly it's a little gushy although there are some fun tidbits in that as well all right well oh and if you sorry and if you want to hear uh caraba's thoughts on the jesse lacy sex allegation stuff the new york times piece about him from 2018 he talks about how disgusted and shocked and 
how upsetting it was to find out that that was happening underneath his nose. All He covers all of that very eloquently and very smartly. I think of all of the aging rockers from this emo scene, he has definitely aged the best. He has always had like the least misogynistic and problem, problematic lyrics. They don't, you know, put the blame of suicide on you, the girl that's breaking up with them, the way that Taking Back Sunday, it could cost, it could possibly be construed as. So I feel like out of all of them, he's the most thoughtful. I would highly recommend that piece as well. All right. I covered Fall Out Boy, which is an interesting one because they're probably the most famous band that came out of emo, I would argue. Certainly the most mainstream. As we talked about Taking Back Sunday, Dashboard Confessional, and Something Corporate, and a bunch of other bands that have come up on the tour circuit, most of these bands are known by people our age and that kind of range a little older, a little younger, but are nowhere near to the level of being known as Fall Out Boy, and that's probably because Fall Out Boy has been, with apart from a short hiatus, a consistent band these la- this last decade plus. Fall Out Boy was formed in Wilmette, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago, in 2001. Joe Troman and Pete Wentz started the group as a pop-punk side project from their respective hardcore punk bands. Patrick Stump later joined the group very shortly thereafter, and he came from a grindcore band. Everybody in this band has a hardcore background. Oh my god, I forgot about grindcore. What a subgenre. Yep, and after a succession of drummers, Andy Hurley, who had been in several hardcore and metal bands, joined the group as the drummer. And there was a big hardcore scene in Chicago around that time. Hurley is actually the only member in the group, fun fact, to still maintain a straight-edge lifestyle to bring it back to hardcore. And all that. Troman met Patrick Stump. This is a really interesting story. Um, who was then still a drummer for a grindcore band that was called Grinding Process, but had X's at the. <laughs> that was such a the thing. little X's. The oh little my god! X's. Of course, yes, I remember that so vividly. So Unfortunately they, they for met me, at a Borders. Wow. Oh, I remember this story. So, it, so, so Troman was discussing the band Neurosis with a friend. He, Patrick Stump, interrupts their conversation to correct how they have classified this band in this conversation that then shifted to the new band that was fallout boy patrick stump who saw it as this opportunity to try out with a local hardcore celebrity in pete wentz because pete wentz was known for his hardcore band they direct patrick stump directed troman to his mp3.com page (laughs) yep it contained all these recordings then Stump initially tried out as the drummer because this is before Hurley was in the band. But Troman urged him to bring out his acoustic guitar and he really impressed the duo with, with songs from Saved to the Days through being cool. Talk about an emo band throwback. They go on and become Fall Out Boy and release their debut album, Take This to Your Grave, on Fueled by Ramen Records in May of 2003. And I skipped a little bit of like their, you know, coming up of performing live and stuff like that, just so save some time here. This album is re- produced by Sean O'Keefe, who worked on and went on to work with several big pop punk indie emo bands from that time, a lot of them from that Chicago scene, because that's where he was based, including Hawthorne Heights, Plain White Tees, Motion City Soundtrack, The Hush Oh my Sound, God. Less Than Jake. Company of Thieves, and Punchline. Fall Out Boy was actually signed to Island Records, but the label allowed them to release this album under Fueled by Robin, which they had signed to and then released their subsequent albums on Island following this. 
John Janik, the founder of Fueled by Ramen, had an early version, had heard an early version of a song online of Fall Out Boys and cold called the band at their apartment to try to get them to sign. Rob Stevenson from Island Records eventually offered the band what was considered a first ever incubator sort of deal. And basically what it meant was that they could sign with Fueled by Ramen for this one-off debut album. And then they knew that they could upstream the band to radio with the sophomore record. This is like stuff I don't think you hear of anymore. No. But but really, really interesting seeing kind of the indie label and the big label work side by side. So apparently for this, the songwriting process for this album was pretty tumultuous with Patrick Stump being the main lyricist, but Pete Wentz taking apart the lyrics and rewriting and reconstructing a lot of them. But over time, they got their group together, and it's very much been since then kind of Patrick Stump being um, the music and then Pete Wentz being the main lyricist of the band. The original album cover featured Pete Wentz on his bed, face down, in his room in the band's apartment with stuff on the walls and shelves that belonged to the other members, all sorts of, like, pop culture posters and memorabilia. And it was rejected by Fueled by Ramen because they had the posters of all these famous bands and actors and Star Wars characters, and it would have taken forever to clear the rights for this, so they had to go with what is now the today's the actual album cover, which is a blue-tinted picture of the band, meant to look like um, an old Miles Davis record, with a black overlay card on top of the picture that has their name in big letters, and has a picture of the band, which was one of the last pictures they had taken of them that night while they were doing this photo shoot, and it was like 2 in the morning. And like they were tired and they were on a really short couch and it just kind of ended up being that picture. It's pretty iconic. So upon its release, while not as mainstream as their second album because this was released on Fueled by Ramen, this has gone on to be known as a landmark album in the pop, punk, and emo scene. Alternative Press, which was a big publication at the time for emo records and pop punk, they called the album, quote, a subcultural touchstone and described it as, quote, a magical, transcendent, and deceptively smart pop punk masterpiece that ushered in a vibrant scene resurgence with a potent combination of charisma, new media marketing, and hardcore punk urgency. After this album is released and an appearance on the Warp Tour, they're basically dubbed the next big thing. They go on after that to release their first major label album on from under the cork tree in Burbank, hometown, where they, as their previous album, had been recorded in the Midwest and was on a rush schedule to make things work during their immense touring schedule. So they had the time and money to record this time and were actually living in corporate housing in Burbank as they were recording this. That's not surprising. Lots of people lived in... Do you know which... Where they recorded... Because you had mentioned 311 earlier where they had a studio... 311 recorded a studio that butted up against the fence that shared one of the lower fields at my middle school and that's how we met 311. They were playing basketball outside... And we went up to them and they were crazy nice dudes and signed autographs and talked to us. And I feel like Fall Out Boy might have recorded in the same place. I could be hallucinating because I think that Burbank is the epicenter of everything. But, I mean, it's pretty close. A lot of corporate housing was in Burbank. A lot of child actors were disappointed there. A lot of Fall Out Boys recorded albums. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I was looking through... Honestly, it's okay if you can't find out. it. I just was curious. I, and I also am not providing a name because I don't remember what it was called. Yeah, I'm not sure, to be honest. But after... Come original, though. <laughs> Come original. Anyway, I will stop. 
So they, uh, this was a really difficult record to release because they just were, I think Pete Wentz was dealing with the anxiety of having to have this record become the next big thing. Two weeks before they began recording this album, they scrapped 10 songs and wrote an additional eight, including their breakthrough single, Sugar We're Going Down, which would go on to number eight on the Billboard singles chart. In February 2005, which was three months before the album's release in May, Pete Wentz suffered a breakdown, which led to a suicide attempt. Wow. He swallowed a bunch of pills in a Chicago Best Buy parking lot and went back and was uh, had to go to the hospital, obviously. He went back to live with his parents in Wilmette, which delayed the production recording a little bit. They recorded this, as I said earlier, under the Island Records label, and it was released in May 2005 and peaked at number nine on the Billboard 200 and sold over four million copies. The singles obviously include their breakthrough, Sugar We're Going Down. The other big single from this album was Dance Dance, which I have a degree of separation anecdote here. I was in a co two college acapella groups, and I was in an all-female one with someone, shout out to you, Amanda, who was in the Dance Dance music video as an extra. It was filmed at her high school, and I believe she it was Long Island. I could be wrong. I'm sorry, Amanda. It was filmed at the high school, and you, if you recall, the setting for this music video, because we watched it together, is a prom scene. So there are a ton of high schoolers everywhere. and the They play like their high school alter ego at this prom. Exactly. So you see the nerdy version, introverted versions of themselves, and then you see the like rock star versions of themselves up on stage playing as the band. And the big celebrity in this, and I'm blanking on her name, and I should have written it, is... Oh, Cherie from, from 30 Rock. Rock, which is the second time she had come up in one week for me, which is more times than I've thought about her since 30 Rock ended. Me too. Yeah. Well, we were talking about um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh, right. Yes. Of which she is the quote-unquote hot girl, and she is the quote-unquote hot girl in this video, too. She is, yeah. And she's wearing one of those, like, drop waist dresses, which were all Oh, my waist. God. Why were those popular? Unless you are very tall and thin like she is, it does not look good on you. I would argue it also doesn't look good on her. It didn't look good on Paris Hilton, who is very tall and very thin. I just think it, like, peplum tops was created in a lab to make women feel bad about themselves. I'm telling you, if the 2000s fashion comes back, it no. is not going to be a good look for anyone. High-waist pants I can handle Delia's way. coming back. I yeah, cannot yeah, yeah, yeah. handle... No, 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 no. I'm talking about low, super low-rise jeans. No, I do not want thongs peeking back out of jeans again. Logos. Like, pre-recession fashion is the fucking worst. No, please, God. Just leave me in my flowy Madewell tops alone. Yep. So anyway, they go on to earn a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist, and they won an MTV Music Video Award for Sugar We're Going Down. This album was a huge success and a breakthrough. Pete Wentz would go on to probably be known as the most famous member of this group during this time. Mr. Ashley Simpson. Mr. Becoming a pseudo-emo poster boy and becoming famous for his high-profile relationship where he dated and later married Ashley Simpson and had a kid with her. With her. During this time, they headlined the Black Clouds and Underdogs tour, which also... And so emo. And I, I felt like I kept saying this as I'm writing everything. I was, It was like being back in high school again and just... I kept saying, so emo. In this tour, uh, also featured bands were The Hush Sound. Um, they're also from Chicago, and I love them. Hawthorne Heights, All American Rejects, and From First to Last. In 2007, they released their next album, Infinity on High, which debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 and included the singles, The Carpal Tunnel of Love, This Isn't a Scene, It's an Arms Race, which is an oh my God. for all the emo kids everywhere, and Thanks for the Memories, which is stylized infamously by removing all the vowels like an unfortunate hand of, scra of Scrabble. 
The song's title, as I found out through research, the reason they removed all the vowels comes as a facetious nod, according to Wikipedia, at Fall Out Boy's record company, who had asked them to shorten their often verbose song titles, which is true. You look at any album, backside of a Fall Out Boy album, every single song title is a novel. Looking at you, Fiona Apple, when the pawn. I mean, that was a whole poem, though. That's true. And that was just an album title. But for Fall Out Boy, all of their songs. I mean, I would also say that Taking Back Sunday had some long-ass titles, too. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking... And lots of parentheses associated. It was a little much. Straylight Run's, like, signature song is Existentialism on Prom Night. Yeah, I was recently forced to listen to that song while drunk at a bar. I... Sang that song in an acapella group, Great. actually, with Amanda. Everyone has a thing. Everybody uh, has a story. Okay. <laughs> okay, so then this album goes on to sell over 3 million copies, so slightly less successful, but still very, very successful. They go on to headline the 2007 Honda Civic Tour, which I never heard of a car tour before, but here we are. I think Scion honestly did a tour as well. They probably did. That feels very Scion. This also <laughs> this tour also included Plus 44, which was one of Mark Hoppus's and, <laughs> um, and, and Tom and sorry Travis Barker's side projects as one of many. Cobra Starship, the Academy is ding ding ding, and Paul Wall. And, oh, Paul Wall is a weird addition. Yep. But also Cobra Starship, who introduced Taking Back Sunday to their management. Yep. It's all connected. The band also headlined the Wild Young Things Tour, or the Young Wild Things Tour, an international arena tour featuring gym class heroes, which makes sense because Patrick Stump sang guest vocals on Cupid's Chokehold and Close Off on that one album. Is he friends with Katy Perry? I don't know. I don't know. They, I mean, they all kind of came up around the same time. Katy Perry a few years later, but maybe. Plain White Tees and Cute nope. is what we aim for. <laughs> Their third album, Folie à Deux, is released at the end of 2008. This album will have lower sales than previous albums and debuts at number eight on the Billboard 200. And it's not 100% clear how many records sold in the U.S. Based on, like, the research I was doing, I looked at several Wikipedia articles and several, like, notes and tried to figure it out. But I know that in the United States, they only sold a little over 500,000 in the U.S. And this was significant because the last two albums had gone multi-platinum in the U.S. alone. I think each had sold over 2 million in the U.S. alone. At this time, the tensions in the band increased very much. Wentz and Stump were fighting, especially since Wentz was taking a lot of LSD at the time and later was taking more drugs. Joe Troman and Andy Hurley felt like they weren't getting a say in anything in the band and had really become the Pete Wentz and Patrick Stump show. And they expressed their concerns to Stump, so that led to more collaboration on the album, but the tensions were still very high. Uh, the album was met very negatively by fans. The band found it hard to tour with the new material because as soon as they would get on stage, they would try to play anything from that album and they would just be met with tons of booze from the audience. At this point, they released a great hit, a greatest hits album in the fall of 2009 and went on a hiatus with their final show being at Madison Square Garden on October 4th, 2009. And they weren't really sure at the time if they would ever come back. Towards the end of the show, Blink-182's Mark Hoppus <laughs> shaved Pete Wentz's head in a move Andy Green in Rolling Stone would later describe as, quote, symbolic cleansing of the past, but also the beginning of a very dark chapter for the band. <laughs> Thank you, Wikipedia. Well, he didn't bleach his hair, so he's fine. During this hiatus. Which everybody knows is the male equivalent of bangs. It is. It really is. Because on a female, perfectly fine. On a male... 
Uh, unless you you're Frank Ocean or like a couple of other people. Like it's my mostly just Frank Ocean. Frank Ocean and my friend's husband might be the only two people who have pulled it off successfully. During this hiatus, most of the Batman dealt with a lot of issues. Patrick Stump was at his heaviest weight-wise and was really uncomfortable dealing with the emo label that he had been given along with his band. He lost weight during this time, about 60 pounds, and he got married. And during his solo album release, because he's the only one who put out a solo album during that time, and while he was touring for it, he was dealing with hecklers from the crowd who would yell out horrible things like, we liked you better fat. Like, really, really mean people. Yikes. Um, so he was struggling with all of that and I, having kind of this identity crisis. Pete Wentz was taking Clonopin and Xanax, which is great. Fun. A um, fun combo. He got a divo- he divorced Ashley Simpson around this time as well. But he eventually did sober up and during this hiatus and, and, and stopped taking drugs and, you know, kind of made something out of his life. And during that time, he also, as we found out, started an electro duo group called Black Cards with a vocalist by the name of, um, oh my God, B.B. Rexa. Holy shit, hooligans, shout out to you all. (laughs) Meanwhile, Andy Hurley was dealing with depression and eventually sought help, but was also managing his record label, Fuck City. He and Joe Troman eventually started the band called The Damn Things with Scott Ian and Rob Cajano Cajano from Anthrax and Keith Buckley of Every Time I Die. Fall Out Boy would reunite as a band in 2013, and this seems to be a common theme with some of these Evo bands. A lot of them took a hiatus at the end of the aughts or end of the 2000s, whatever you want to call that decade, and then came back within five you know, to ten years later for some sort of a reunion. Fall Out Boy would go on to release their album Save Rock and Roll as their comeback album, and the tour and album announcement included a photo of the group that had been taken earlier that morning, the day they, re- they announced this, of all the band, band members huddled around a bonfire while tossing copies of their back catalog into flames at the original location of Comiskey Park. This park is notable because in the late 70s, there was an event known as Disco Demolition Night where people brought disco records and had a big bonfire and just burned them all. So they basically recreated that scene or that that event with their own albums. And it was sent, met, it was symbolized as kind of new beginnings for the band to forget, you know, all the tumultuous things that had happened during their first run. This album debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. The big single, of course, was My Songs Did My Songs Know What You Did in the Dark, Light Em Up, which makes sense given the bonfire that they had. And ha- they have gone on since then to release American Beauty slash American Psycho in 2015 and Mania in 2018. Their latest album, Mania, acknowledges their emo past, and in the music video for one of the album's singles, they actually have a bunch of eager Easter eggs that allude to their past as a band and have interesting, fun references for the fans. There is a lyric on this album that has been dubbed by fans as the most emo lyric ever, and it's in fact a Wednesday Adams reference. I'll stop wearing black when they make a darker color. Cute. So as we're trying to wrap things up here, we're realizing we have given you a novel of emo history. We have given you Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections. It is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but with crooked bangs and studded belts. And Hot Topic and just being really, really dramatic. So we will probably come back with a mini-sode in the future, mini-episode 
in the future on Fueled by Robin Records. And we'll probably touch on some of the uh, other artists that we wanted to talk about today. I mean, there will definitely be a part two to this emo band because we initially were going to do three bands each and then realize yep. that trying to do that was insane. It so we'll is. have a part two to this emo band. We'll have a follow-up mini episode specifically about Fueled by Ramen and possibly Victory Records or some Vagrant Records. Some record, emo record yeah. shenanigans There's, in a mini episode. I, I mean, I think if we ever decide to publish a book, this is this is it. This oh my is our God. book. I am so dehydrated but i will say silver lining though is we will in fact have a playlist for you that's right if you go to our spotify you will see that there is a playlist that we have created that features all of our favorite emo songs in addition to this playlist as always you can check us out on the playlist though we will also have artists that weren't featured on this episode but we'll probably cover at some point in the future so it'll feature some Taking Back Sunday and some Something Corporate, but don't be surprised if you see a Hawthorne Heights or a... What was... Straylight yeah. Run. No, there was another one. Oh, no. Oh. May? No. Uh, damn it. Uh, mm. Cute is what we... Hot, know. hot heat. Ah, yes. <laughs> Which is another personal fave of mine. So we'll have a playlist up featuring all the bands that we were talking about, plus a few others. And you can follow us on Instagram. You can follow us on Instagram at at the old millennials pod and at Facebook at the old millennials pod. You can also follow us individually on our Twitters. I am at Emily A. Bijan. And I'm at Mark. She wrote. And you can also like, subscribe, listen to us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever you choose to enjoy your podcasts on. Please do rate and comment and subscribe to us. Uh, that helps us. It gets our name out there, and we just really appreciate it. So make sure you dust off that studded belt and pull out your best hair cream for this episode. We appreciate you sticking with a longer one. Until next time, we say bye. Bye. Newport Beach. The Pool House. Captain Oates. Chino. Ew. I'm Michelle. I'm Liz. And I'm Ingrid. And we're Let's, Let's Talk, Talk OC. We're the ladies that brought you Tree Hill Talk, and now we are on the West Coast talking about the early 2000s teen drama, The OC. Join us every Monday as we watch and review each episode. We hope you can join us. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.